Hey everyone, welcome to Neuropod. Today I'm really excited to have on a guest, Dr. Frederick Gilbert. He's uh, located in Tasmania, Australia. And um, he was one of the authors of a paper that I read that's related to humans and their interactions or their experiences when they have a brain computer interface implant. Uh, so after reading that paper, I was really interested in some of the research that he's been doing and wanted to get his take on what he thinks like the field is progressing towards and some of the pros and cons of Neuralink and just overall get a sense of like what his research has, has uh, been. So super excited to have him on and just have a conversation. Um, so yeah, Dr. Gilbert, do you mind just telling the audience a little bit about yourself and some of the research <laughs> yeah, you've done? Sure. Yeah, th thanks, Ryan, for uh, the invitation. I'm looking forward to discussing the ethics of brain-computer interface. Uh, I hope we're going to talk about it. I guess that's why you invited me. So uh, my background, so I'm a, I'm a philosopher by training. Uh, I did a PhD on free will and how neurobiological technologies might impact the concept of free will and potentially the consequences on the notion of responsibility, law, etc. And I've been working the last 12 years on uh, the ethics associated with invasive brain technologies, uh, especially in implantable brain computer interfaces, how electrodes put in the brain uh, might impact uh, or understanding uh, of, for instance, concept of the sense of the self, agency, identity, autonomy, etc. So I look at the uh, concerns uh, associated with uh, implanting uh, material or device in the brain. Awesome. Um, and so I guess uh, for undergrad, were you studying similar things, uh, similar related fields? So, uh, so I did my uh, master and PhD in Geneva in Switzerland. So I did study applied ethics of medical ethics. My uh, question associated with neuroethics in general. So how, for instance, a stem cell and injected in the brain might also interfere or impair one's one understanding of themselves. Uh, and uh, I saw associated with the question of sorry paradox. So at what point these stem cells stop, stop being stem cell but yourself? So what the famous paradox in philosophy. So that was my master and the PhD yeah, where we're associated with uh, yeah, neurological uh, issues. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so do you mind uh, telling the audience a little bit about the paper that you guys published? I, mean, I assume you've published many papers, but the one that I saw <laughs> was six different patients with a brain-computer interface implant, and they've had... Yes. Yep, okay. No, no, please. <laughs> and, and they had like a variety of different outcomes. Yeah, so the, so the paper that attracted your attention um, is one of the or four papers that we published about that very study. So the the clinical trial itself was uh, reported in the Lancet Neurology uh, by Cook and colleagues in 2013. Uh, and we started to closely uh, monitor um, patients' experience with being implanted with this brain-computer interface. So the technology is 
it's pretty brilliant. So it ca it's capable of predicting or forecasting uh, epileptic seizure. As such, alert the patient ahead. And as such, the patient need to decide whether or not they will trust the device uh, or simply you know, rest, lay, or keep going. That's the choice. But the technology was quite successful. Uh, um, the company that was um, running uh, the experiment was called NeuroVista. They have since bankrupt, uh, uh, which also raised a couple of ethical questions. But yeah, so the, the, the study itself, we were trying to understand the phenomenology of being implanted with brain-computer interface. So we, we have this positive image about the fact that if you were implanted and if the technology worked perfectly well, therefore your life will be enhanced, your life, your life will be better. So we wanted to look at the subjective experience of being implanted with this brain-computer interface, this smart technology. And we realized that, yeah, in most of the case, yes, it has worked well for the patient. In, and in some respect, actually we have two patients that describe sort of mergence with the technology. It seems that their self is merging with the technology. In one of the case, it led to a, uh, I would say, a, new, a de novo person, a new pers a person emerge out of the emergence. But in the other case, we have a patient that had their existence drastically changed and radically, uh, well, I would say, has induced some radical distress, psychological distress to the patient. Mm -hmm. So it seems that even if you merge with the technology, even if the technology, uh, seems to be effective, uh, meet the therapeutic outcome, it didn't translate necessarily and positively for all the patients, I may say so. And I guess that's how we have to approach these novel implantable technologies to keep a, a very secure eyes on safety and how the human experience is uh, being impacted by the technology. So this is basically what have revealed the paper. Overall, most patients had positive psychological experience, but we have noticed that uh, a patient has experienced radical distress. That led to some um, form of depression, depressive symptoms. Uh, and again, despite the fact that uh, the technology was working uh, well and had meet, meet the therapeutic end outcome yeah, endpoint. Yeah, I thought it was so fascinating to to read through that paper because I just expected most of like all of the outcomes to be positive, especially if the technology works. And so if somebody can have basically have a sensor to tell them if they're going to have a seizure, like that sounds so incredibly positive. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, just being able to um, like read some of the the patients. Uh, description of the feelings that they had that that was pretty interesting yeah so, so th these were uh narratives so we we have a a lot of data so we yeah i can't remember six or seven um hours well, i can't remember exactly i will i will, I will send your, your audience to look at the paper itself i'm not sure if there will be a link or yep yep i'll make sure to include the, of the paper video. in the comment but, uh, yeah, so we have a lot of data. We were only able to analyze some of it. 
But for, um, I guess the, the, the interesting part is that, yeah, when it worked, was working really well. So you have narratives, so patient experience describing a, a new sense of the self. They are saying that they are, they are born. They finally be reborn with the, the technology, that the, the technology has changed itself. Uh, and to the point that they are capable of doing what they want in life, they can embrace, they are uh, empowered. Uh, there's a form of embodiment, uh, you know, clear you know, narrative associated with uh, emergence. And in one patient in particular, uh, uh, so imagine if you have epilepsy for 45 years, mm -hmm. chronic epilepsy, uh, you, you implant that in the head of people that have chronic epilepsy, that means they, they can, can't even walk on the side of, of the street because they might fall, they can't drive cars, they need to have a constant company with other, other people, et cetera. So if you are implanted and you have epilepsy during 45 years and once you are implanted, the technology can alert you ahead and you have no more uh, uh, symptoms. So that very patient, uh, patient six, uh, was implanted. And for the moment she was implanted, all the, the seizures were, were captured, were, were, were alert, and she never had epileptic seizure after that. Imagine the, the drastic change and positive change in her life. It was just fabulous, spectacular. It's, it's just right. a very story. That's, yeah. it's, it's glorious. And <laughs> was splendid. But to the point that we realized that that patient six became more and more uh, sort of over-reliant or almost addicted to the prediction. She couldn't make a, a decision without looking at the device. She always needed the device to sort of inform uh, uh, sort of a, being a warrant on a life, which makes sense, obviously, psychologically, as mm -hmm. vulnerable before. Uh, and as such, uh, the moment when the company bankrupt, as I mentioned, because neurobis are bankrupt, mm -hmm. patient forced to be explained. And that Ooh. patient refused to be explained because imagine, oh, wow, in a Pepsi anymore, the company want to remove the device out of your brain. Yeah. And she refused. What, what do you do? So they, they were not going to send the police. You have this scenario of uh, Blade Runner where, you know, police can really do that. Someone has to do it. They refuse. They sort of resist. They might start to hide themselves, not showing up at the meeting, etc. right? So you, you face these novel behaviors. But uh, that very patient, six, since the moment she has been explained, the device has been dysfunctional, she uh, has had a severe trauma. So is it mm. acid epilepsy? Because your life has been changed. You were a de novo person and suddenly it's gone. It's also raised question about human rights. What are your rights as a patient? And it's, it's quite intriguing. But that was the success story. The, the, the ending is a bit sad, but that's due to some um, financial reason. Mm -hmm. But so we, we had the patient three who has sort of a curious interaction with the device. It was sort of impeding on her uh, conception of uh, the self-identity because indeed the, the technology was uh, very effective at telling her that she had epilepsy, but she didn't want to know it. She sort of refused. She didn't accept the fact that she was an epileptic patient. Mm -hmm. It has led to some severe and drastic um, yeah, impact on her self-understanding actually in her case. But again, you have a technology working, but uh, we, we, nobody could have foresee how it would translate to the, for the patient. Yeah, yeah, I see. Do you mind um, reminding me what year you guys conducted the study? 
Yes, yeah, so the, the uh, trial finished in 2013. So we started uh, interviewing the patient from 2013 uh, and so on. So they were retrospective narrative. Um, okay. Joined the project quite later, actually. So the, the yeah, it was a, a retrospective analysis of uh, their narratives. Uh, and I, actually, I'm, I, regarding patient six, uh, I'm still in contact uh, with her. Uh, I'm, I'm very close to submit my, my final reports. I've been uh, following her for the last seven years now, actually. Uh, we oh, meet wow. uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and um, it's, 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 it's quite interesting. She, she, she had few, uh, she had an interview later with Nature Medicine. It's, it's quite intriguing how uh, a brain computer and device could have as changed your life and suddenly it being gone, it's part of yourself which, which is gone as well. And she, she used the narrative of uh, um, losing a part of herself, actually. They stole that of herself. She, that's the type of narrative she, she's using, for instance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess this is like kind of uh, foreshadowing some of the things that uh, Neuralink and other companies need to be aware of and hopefully avoid. Yeah. Um, we, we, we know since um, I would say half of the 2000, thanks to deep brain stimulation, mm -hmm. that even if the technology meets the targets, the therapeutic target, it doesn't necessarily translate well for the patient. There's a famous study done in France uh, by Ajit and Schubert. The title of the paper, it's called the, patient, the, the Doctor Happy, the Patient Less So, where you have got uh, these, uh, they were the first human to be implanted with deep brain stimulation. And they, they, the, the study report how well the technology has target and, and reduce and resolve uh, the uh, Parkinson symptom, but they started to notice that psychologically the patient weren't better; they were worse actually. Some mm. uh, to uh, divorce number as high as fifty-four percent of people divorcing, which is a bit strange because finally you're sort of free of your symptom; you should embrace your couple. But no, it was leading to some <laughs> separation. Mm. People working etc so it, it led to this idea that um uh you know a successful technology a successful implantable technology brain computer interface for instance could actually lead to the, what we call the the burden of normality the fact that some patient cannot quote quote sorry with the fact of being normal i don't like the, the term normal but i would say symptom free mm -hmm. and that generates psychological side effect and again it's very strange because uh, we're talking about successful technology reaching their clinical endpoint. End and this is, as, as you just mentioned, it's, this is crucial and capital for uh, companies such as Neuralink to actually investigate and look at the human experience within their trials. And, and they have to take account very early in the development and the design of their technology of human experience. Because again, you might have the most expensive and effective technology, but it might not be psychologically safe for a patient, for instance. And that would be uh, extremely uh, uh, you know, bad, not only for the patient, but I guess uh, for, for, for humanity in a sense, in the sense that you know, we, we wouldn't be able to uh, advance uh, and innovate 
medically speaking, medically speaking, sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and so like one of the, the reason that I asked the question of when you guys started, um, and you said 2013, like to me that's really interesting because seven years ago, these things were already being put in practice. And now I think a lot of folks are hearing about Neuralink or learning about Neuralink because of Elon Musk or whatever their avenue is. It's really the first time that they're aware that this thing exists. It, it was the first time that I, th I realized it existed. And so to be able to have that real world, uh, you know, information and, and outcomes uh, from many years ago is, is really telling. And um, the, the hope should be that we're progressing, you know, every year after that. And so now that we're in 2020, hopefully, whether it's with um, similar implants like before, or with new implants, like overall, the outcomes are better. At least, at least certainly that's the aspiration. Um, yeah, so I guess, um, <laughs> sorry, yeah, that was just a, <laughs> a thought okay, I had. For it. Um, I was wondering uh, if, if there are any things that you guys have continued looking into. I mean, I know you, you referenced patient six. Um, are, there other, are there other things that you guys have continued researching that are related to the ethics space uh, with brain compute, computer interfaces? Yeah, so we, we we were trying to secure funding to go deeper, but we were able to uh, keep uh, looking at some aspects. So one of the elements uh, which was quite urgent to look at is was the the side day of um, estrangement. So what we've noticed is that with the implantable brain computer interface, uh, some of the patient reported feeling of estrangement. And so they embody the technology because they merge, but they describe a form of estrangement. They're not themselves any, anymore in a way. So, and we've noticed that there is a, a sort of a restorative enhancement, so estrangement, a restorative uh, uh, estrangement where uh, they describe new capacities. They could, could do stuff that they couldn't have done in the past, right? But there's also a deteriorative um, estrangement where actually they start losing control on themselves. And that seems also to be associated with uh, uh, the brain-computer interface. And if your audience look at the paper that you mentioned, Embodiment and Estrangement, uh, first risen from a clinical trial, a BCI trial, we, we both restorative and deteriorative uh, estrangement. And we were also capable of looking at these parameters within a Parkinson patient implanted with deep brain stimulation. Uh, we noticed that uh, many of these estrangement narrative are linked with some impulsive behaviors, uh, and again, which dictate that there's a, a, an, a, an elements of powerlessness. So patients lose control on themselves, actually. And, and that's quite risky. And, and we have found that patient three in, in the study that we mentioned 
experience that loss of control. And that's why she started to be depressed and, 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 and have these uh, distressful feelings. And these, the restorative capacities described by the patient are actually, with the PD population, uh, are a form of distorted interpretation of the capacities. So we have many examples, and, and some of them are quite funny, but also tragic at the same time. We, we have Parkinson's disease patient implanted with deep brain stimulation, symptom are gone, they change a little bit the stimulation and suddenly they, they have this feeling of superhero. So we have a lady, uh, she was uh, 56 and decided that she needed to move the pool table. You know, she was playing pool in the basement. She was, had to move the pool table. As a result, she almost broke her back. She spent three, uh, three months in a wheelchair because there's no way that at yeah, 50 years yeah. of lifting the pool table, she wasn't able at 21. Never ever she would be able to do that. But because of the stimulation, suddenly she had this impulse. She lost control. That's her narrative. Mm -hmm. And she blamed the implant. We have published that, that, that study as well. Similar anecdote uh, where we have a lady, again in the morning, her clinician twisted a little bit the stimulation. And the lady suddenly uh, had this feeling that she wanted to meet her husband. But to do so, she's decided that she's going to walk to meet him, knowing that it would take her about two days to walk to the place because it's so far away. So a neighbor stopped her because she was walking to see her husband. And again, Erso also blamed the, the device, the technology for doing so. So we have these you know, deteriorative elements uh, associated with estrangement. They described that, that wasn't me. I wasn't decided. It wasn't me acting on that moment. Something else was intruding on my decision-making process. Similar with what we have seen with the BCI, where the patient clearly used the language, I, I lost control, I have the feeling I have no control on myself. Mm -hmm. As well, the technology were working very well, effective, but psychologically it has translated in something else. And that's quite urgent. We, we need to look at these issues. So estrangement, which is not always negative, by the way, as I said, it's a positive outcome. Um, and yeah, that, that, these are our examples. And, and again, in relation with patient six, uh, that's why we're asking for some funding, but I, I, I haven't been successful the last two rounds. But trying to, I mentioned the uh, Blade Runner example, where again, think about that, you, 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 you implant a technology that changed your life drastically, radically, but mm -hmm. not own the technology. It's owned by a company, yeah. property of the company, right? So they have a legal right to take back their property. But by doing so, they appropriate your existence. In a way, they, they own your existence because without the technology, you cannot be yourself. You're not that new person. And at any cost, you want that out of your brain. So you try to you know, avoid the meeting. You're not showing up. You sort of resist, don't reply to the email, don't, really, don't pick up the phone, right? So that these tiny uh, details seems a bit funny because we are 2020, but imagine 50 years if we have more and more of these cases of patient refusing. Mm -hmm. So it's about uh, human rights here, but patient rights uh, as such as, yeah, if you merge with the technology, if you have clear evidence, clear clinical evidence that there's emergence, then does it give you new rights as a human being? Or as a, as a merged person, 
or as a cyborg. I'm not sure how you want to count it, but mm -hmm. that's quite important to look into that because at that point, the technology should not be owned by the, mm -hmm. by the company itself because you should be able to appropriate uh, the technology for from, from many reasons. And, and that's something that we have to look after. There, there's already debates about neural rights for various reasons, but I think that that's a clear example of where uh, you have uh, a case to look into the legalities of um, explanting the device. Because the conception is that prior, if tomorrow morning you want to be the first patient to have Neuralink, mm -hmm. uh, then you will have to sign an informed consent to get something in your head, right? Because you have to consent for that. You have to agree. But the opposite is not necessarily clear. If they want to get out of your head, you still need to agree, right? But it's not how the law is built at the moment. And it's a okay. form of swift is so force you, what I call force explantation. Could be force explantation, could be by physical direct uh, intervention, or it could be by psychological indirect intervention. And there's many ways of seeing force explantation. Mm. All right, too much now. You should <laughs> you should ask me some question. No, yeah. <laughs> uh yeah. I, so do you think the, the solution to that is allowing the patient at the, at the time of implantation, do you want them to have the ability to buy the entire device outright or rent it, choose to rent it? Yeah. So, so in the NeuroVista trial, the, the, and actually there's good work done with um, some company with deep brain stimulation where, for instance, we, we had a case of a broadened trial uh, in the United States, uh, many patients have kept the device because the experimental trial was shut down and patients were offered to keep the technology with them. But with novel experimental trial, such as the uh, NeuroVista uh, device, is that according to them, again, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't have the support, the technical, technological support. So if you keep your device and you're in a far remote area of Victoria, mm -hmm the border of South Australia. So how are you gonna have technical support if something wrong happened with the technology? That was the narrative. Then you can think that you're right. If, if, if you think of a technology which is a bit more spread around like deep brain stimulation, so in the informed consent, you would have a clause telling you, yeah, you might have the option to keep the technology and the company will uh, make the necessary effort to allow you to keep the, the technology if it's work point for you. And, and, and now with DBS, we, we, have see, we see that, but it wasn't the case in the past. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I see. So I wonder what happens with devices like, um, like stents or like any, anything that's currently implanted in the body that's not, not necessarily in the brain. I wonder what happens if those companies go bankrupt. It's a good question. So, um, this is, <laughs> I apologize for your audience. Uh, this is um, the, uh, the academic, the scholar that remember reading a paper, but can't remember the title of the paper. Hmm. Uh, it's in America, the number of people implanted with technologies and keep it and, 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 and have still have the technology despite the fact that, that the company is not looking after them is quite high actually. So hmm. there are, well, you know that, there's a lot of biocompatible uh, materials like titanium dioxide. You can keep that almost forever in your body without, you know, you have erosion, but that the severities of the side effects are pretty low and there's not much big issue, if not at all. 
So you can think then exactly that are implanted and will remain then until you die actually. And then we are facing more and more of these cases of uh, Parkinson patients now that were implanted with DBS 15, 20 years ago and dying. And some of these uh, patients asked to be cremated, but they have a, a technology in the brain. So what do you do with that type of uh, scenario? Do you, so, and we have seen that in the past, you have pacemaker being sent uh, from America to Africa, for instance, or to countries that don't have the capacity to afford the technology. So you can think something similar with uh, electrodes, uh, stent that not all of them, obviously. Mm -hmm. And interesting because here in Australia, there's a first in human uh, a BCI at the moment tested uh, by um, spe uh, Spectron. Uh, it's called the Stentron, a Synchron, sorry, uh, uh, the, the Stentron. So they use a, a stent that they entered by the genicula and put it uh, in the brain without invading the neural tissue, without opening the skull. And it has been working well, actually. They have implanted three patients. So you can think about that technology that you cannot really uh, remove after a while because you know that the stem will start to interact. There's interaction, there's because um, it doesn't create a skull tissue compared mm -hmm. with, um, you know, with the Utah array, for instance, we know that after two and a half years, three years, the uterus is less and less effective because the scar tissue start to impact and erode the, the implants. Um, and yeah, you, you, you can think that these tech device material can, can, can last 20, 40 years in the body. And by then, you, 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 the biology will probably have make you redundant. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I think the, the, so I guess the, the whole approach of like implanting different electrodes through the veins uh, seems like a, a more and more common approach, at least with what I've been listening to and hearing and seeing. Uh, is that something that you think is pretty promising? It is promising in a, in a sense that <clears throat> you avoid generating irre uh, irreversible damage to the neural tissue. Mm -hmm. So and as soon as you implant uh, an electrode, uh, you, you have to, it's, it's invasive. So you, you, you do cause scar tissue and damage. And you, it's not always clear what you are actually damaging. So you know, you know neurons are interconnected. So you might, you know, by intruding in the subnucleus thalamus, you might actually um, uh, damage some part of your uh, memory, I don't know, that's an example, that's not memory, but that would be, well, who knows, perhaps there's a connection there. So it's never clear. So if you use a, it's still invasive in a sense that you have to use some vein, mm -hmm. uh, but the damage will be less uh, irrevocable, if I may say so. But the mm -hmm. side effect, well, I'm not sure it's the side effect, but the downside is that you're quite limited of where you need to put because the vein are, you know, are, and most people are situated around the same area. So if you want to have a, if you think about Alzheimer's disease and DBS or, or like a Neuralink, they, 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 they like this idea. So you could see that there will be limitation of where you can put the stand actually, because it, it cannot go everywhere compared to uh, an implant that you can actually put uh, in place uh, in the brain. Again, Neuralink might be just sitting also. So yeah, there's, there's uh, I, I'm not, 
you're an engineer, right? So you, you, you probably have a better answer than I here. But in terms of ethics, if you can remove uh, irreversible effects, that, that's great. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. I, well, I studied civil engineering, so uh, <laughs> my, my knowledge is pretty limited about like how well uh, materials interact with the brain and, and what areas are good uh you know go or no go zones but um i think so last time uh we, we spoke you talked about like basically uh th there are certain tools that we use today that if we remove them then we no longer feel like you know we're we're a full we're we're fully ourselves and then you kind of mentioned it or you, you talked about it earlier in this conversation so I wanted uh, you to talk about like comparing those two um, with, with like, if we have a navigation system in our car and we're like heavily reliant upon it and then it gets taken away, I don't necessarily feel like I'm losing part of myself, but it significantly impacts like how I, how I think about where I'm going. You know, like I all of a sudden feel like, okay, well, maybe now I have to remember like all of these different streets and think about like the layout of where I'm going and stuff like that. Um, what do you think is, what do you think is the best comparison uh, to that in, in the form of like brain computer interfaces? Yeah, thanks. That's, this is a very interesting question. Um, the navigation system have shown that um, some people are, are losing their ability to conceptualize maps in their brain because they, they are over really in, in, in addicted to the, the interface. They, they don't even bother to think, oh, where's north-south because it's mm -hmm. right in front of them. Right. right. So it's fine for us because we are in between generation where we, 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 we know what is a map, right? We have seen a map before we, we, and we have these interfaces. So, but if we think about the new generation that never will have to look and learn about a map and are only dependent on the interface. So you're still vulnerable, extremely vulnerable to the interface if something happened to the interface. So that's the risk here is that if you lose the ability to access the interface, then I'm not sure if we're still capable of relearning how to use a map. And, mm. and again, that's a metaphor to explain, for instance, a digital dementia uh, and how you impact the notion of a, a, a authenticity. How, how do you know that it is really you? How do you feel that it is really you? And digital dementia, it's simply the idea that uh, we are observing in, 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 in teenage and young child uh, that some of them are losing the ability to fabricate memories because everything is accessible there. So if you ask them a question, they say, oh, I know it, but they have to Google the answer. And they say, oh, I know it, it's right there, but that's mm -hmm. not really there. It's the cloud, right? So there's mm -hmm. this identity and authenticity. No, it's not you, it's the cloud. <laughs> but they associate themselves with the cloud. But so digital dementia is simply the fact that you cannot really remember what is the item, but you will remember potentially the path that led you to the, the item. So it might, instead of just say, oh, that was uh, 1757, the civil uh, fight, for instance, right, in Quebec. Then it might take you five minutes to remember, oh yeah, when I saw that, I was at that page, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, we're not sure how that will translate because it seems that some kids as are, are, are losing their opportunity to fabricate uh, syntax, uh, orthographic corrected uh, sentences, 
their ability to uh, conceptualize mathematics because everything is accessible there. But it, it's this idea that um, there is, again, I'm not, sorry, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that uh, these technology are not here to enhance and assist us, yes, obviously. You and I are happy to fly in a plane that is overly commanded by an AI system, right? So uh, this is not my point, but just thinking about how biological and elements that in the past were helping us to and guiding us to various ways that could be even to know yourself better if you listen to your biology instead of listening to a device telling you that you know here's your 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 data that should mean that right so uh and then we might losing these this sort of what, what i call the 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 the, 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 the phenomenology of uh, yeah of knowing yourself in, in that way so it, it is quite uh intriguing when you you receive and read anecdote of people stop trusting reality and and because they they dispute it because they they saw it on the interface i have this colleague um once who told me that he was looking for an hotel in paris and he he was obviously relying on the gps and the gps was telling me that was the address but that wasn't, but he was disputing not the device, but reality started to doubt that, you know, this, this was the case instead of just to say, oh, that's the, the, my device who has an issue here. Instead, it was just a couple of you know, doors away. That's an example of uh, where, um, uh, yeah, you, you, you have a clear sense of uh, a notion such as, yeah, uh, authenticity that might be, uh, treated by, by a, a brain-computer interface. In some cases, I guess it's not a, a generic or general observation. Sure. So your question, I'm not even sure I was answering your question. Actually. Yeah, sorry, it was a bad, <laughs> badly worded question, but I, I, you got at the heart of what I was wondering, which is uh, like the term of, of digital dementia and um, yeah, just like describing how, how you know, that, that phenomenon I think is, is real, like- Yep. Uh, a lot of, I think a lot of people that are on the younger side often think that they're extremely smart because of how much access they have to yeah, the precisely. at any given time. And so yes. it ends up being like, you know, my, my thought is like, okay, well, at any given time, if I want to learn something, I can find it on YouTube, like pretty quickly. So yeah. then it's almost like I can go into any situation feeling like, okay, well, that's in the back of my, you know, that's in my back pocket. Precisely. Whereas yes. a lot of older folks, they're very heavily reliant on their experience. And that experience used to be extremely valuable. And yes, I mean, I think it still is extremely valuable because they end up getting like these niche cases that other people would never, never be able to find online. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, it's like, wow, we just have so much access to information. And then I don't know that it really like becomes a part of us, but it just feels so close that it might as well be a part of us. Yeah, but yeah, I guess that's another, it's an interesting paradox. And, and think about this example to, uh, let's say you're meeting that person and you you quite inclined, uh, have a infectious feeling uh, toward that person. Uh, and you, you want to write a, a letter, right? Mm -hmm. But you have assistant AI system writing on your behalf, right? Mm -hmm. 
really. It's not really you writing, right? That's not really your feeling. It's an AI system that just generates words. So how can you be honest and sincere toward that person? And obviously I could say, yes, it's me. The device know me better, but that's the point of being in love, I guess, is to, you know, being able to translate, even it's very difficult. I guess that's why we have uh, movies, <laughs> theaters, plays, to, just to translate this feeling. Everybody, every culture talks about that feeling, but precisely because it's humanly difficult to comprehend. It's not because of AI would throw words that would reflect your, your, your integrity, you know, the most core element in, in your existence. So that's also an, an, an example of, uh, yeah, authenticity, honesty, sincerity might be triggered. And what we call in France, in Francais, la, la mauvaise foi, bad faith, where you're not very honest toward yourself first. Anyway, mm. the topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll add like a little side, side tangent story. Uh, like Elon, Elon Musk has this school, it's called Ad Astra, and I think they recently renamed the school. But anyway, he, he has like a, I, I think five or six or, you know, several kids, and most of them go to the school, and other students are like, I think Larry Page's children go there, so the founder of Google, one of the founders of Google's mm -hmm. sons, and then some other uh, like pretty well-known people's sons or daughters go to the school and they have no grades and they just learn like anything they want to learn basically and it's all hands-on and then um, Elon was saying that oh well at our school we're not going to teach any of the students language because in the future we'll just be able to download language to our brain directly so it's not a skill that these kids have to learn at the beginning and I mean I get I guess I should just say that like I'm not 100% true that this is the case, but uh, I, re I read it somewhere and it's like, wow, I don't know if that's, you know, it's like may maybe it'd be really useful to learn a language, not only for the sake of learning the language, but also for like building those connections in the brain, you know, to strengthen those muscles. Yeah. Yeah. I like the metaphor of muscle. Exactly. It's a, I guess doing that would be neglecting very important biological element. And I, I think we're still biologically uh, human. Uh, again, I'm thinking that we're, we're, we're at some point we'll have so much dependence on technology that we might question the, the blurry line. Mm -hmm. uh, even nowadays, it's difficult to be a human without a mobile phone. So it's an external element. But, but yeah, you're right there. Uh, Learning a language, I'm not sure many languages you speak, but learning a language also mean and refer to the feelings of having the language. And it's not something that you can develop in, in one click. You, uh, <clears throat> the, the meaning of the word trauma, for instance, if you can learn that word when you're seven and 14, 21, et cetera. And you will realize that everything that you relearn, what means that word that evoke many different realities and memories for you. And that's why language are, are so uh, Link humanity actually, uh, and and some language will strongly dip, dispute uh, this position. And if you, if you cannot acquire a language, then you cannot develop the, the 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 ideas. Actually, it's not the opposite. You don't necessarily have clear idea if you don't have the, a clear language. Many philosophers uh, this have this position, for instance. Hmm. No, no, if you don't have the words, you cannot have the ideas. Basically, do you believe that that's true? Uh, for some specific, subtle, uh, very elegant idea, yes, clearly. 
I guess that's what distinguishes humanity from the rest of the some animal. You can from from very clear, uh, I would say, instinctive idea. No, we probably share all the same. We want food. We want to sleep. Uh, we want have a place to 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 pee, mm-hmm. for instance. But when you start to have more sophisticated uh, ideas, as mathematics, for instance, uh, and very subtle calculus, you need that language. You need the concept in order to develop the language, right? It is in that. So if you download that in one click, again, I'm quite uh, skeptical that we're going to be able to do that. But even if we can do that, I think we're going to miss a big chunk of uh, what it means to be uh, a human into that. Yeah, I see. I'm probably too romantic for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I guess I'm curious uh, about like one of the last questions is I'm curious about um, what you think are some of the pros and cons of what Neuralink's announced so far and what they're trying to build towards. So I guess it's a promising technology and, and I hope for the best. And I against uh, Elon Musk being. Uh, providing evidence that he's capable of, of uh, crystallizing his intuition. So again, it's, it's a very promising uh, technology. So again, I'm repeating myself, but I guess it's very crucial for them to uh, implement early on a, a window or a, a room where they would be able to look at the uh, human experience within their design, right? Uh, and this is central uh, because again, if, even if it's the best technology, it's working because it does target the clinical outcome. It doesn't mean that it would translate necessarily and positively well for the patient. Again, I'm re- sorry, I'm repeating myself, but I, this is this is crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pros is that yes, so there's pathologies out there that we've been trying to treat for decades and doesn't work. So one of the pros is that yeah with innovative technologies such as BCI, we might be able actually to tackle these pathologies. Uh, and we know that many patients implanted with brain-computer interface, so paralysis patients are capable of having a form of restoration by you know, moving a prosthetic limb, or even we have patients that, that actually can move now their paralyzed body and regain uh, feelings, for instance. So that this is fabulous. And this is one of the reasons why we, we um, we need to invest and encourage that type of research, not only, huh? because we'll also be able, we will be able to address uh, <clears throat> many uh, folks, and that's, I guess, a large majority of them that have stroke, for instance, and suffer from paralysis, for instance, or loss of part of their brains, et cetera. Right, so, and and the, the again, I'm not sure if these are cons, but the, the, um, the idea is that we have to be careful about surfing on the hype here, where uh, there's a lot of speculation and a risk is to inflate a bubble, right? Speculative bubble, uh, that involves ethical speculative bubble, right? um, where, you know, we'll create so much hope for some of these patients that it might not at all be able uh, to address their issue. And here, I, I, I'm trying to be as clear as possible. Uh, we did a media uh, review, uh, news outlet review of uh, every time that brain-computer interface was mentioned into a news outlet, we did analyze it. And most of the time, 76% of the time, is a positive description of BCI, right? About 76%, 25% were overly positive. Uh, about 24% were about 
uh, enhancement claiming that we're going to push, re-push human boundaries, we're going to go beyond human capacities, etc. And overall, 2% were mentioning the risk. So it's, it's quite, you know, intriguing. And the reason why I'm saying that is because we know that patients educate themselves via my media, for instance. So I, I don't know exactly your, but perhaps there's someone in the audience now that have a, had a stroke or someone's paralyzed and they want to learn about Neuralink. And, and they hear so much positive outcome, a positive description that they believe the hope is there, the expectation not there, that they will be happy to enroll, be the first person, but that might not match the clinical reality at all. So, and we're working with many patients that are being implanted in experimental trial. And most of the time, the ending of the clinical trial is not a happy ending, right? So they, they, are, they, are, they help to advance the science, but there's always a human cost associated. I mentioned patient six, she was a trauma was induced to her right because of the company bankrupt but again if you're paralyzed you are implanted and you're capable of having some restoration and then after three years the implant doesn't work anymore and we have case we heard about this patient in the past where they they refuse to be explanted for instance and again the, the point is that if you read so much positive element about it you might enroll in a trial in a trial where the technology hasn't reached is, is it's proper ability to convert. That's an example. There's more, but time is running. And <laughs> but I mean, no, again, I'm very, um, I'm very, very looking forward to see the development of Neuralink. It's, uh, it's, it's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm. I mean, like, I guess that that was part of the reason that I, you know, started this whole show was just, I, I'm fascinated by the potential, and I realized that you know it. It really is just potential right now, um, but given given the track record of those in the past, it's like wow, you just kind of end up expecting it to happen, and then it just ends up being a matter of time. So then, I think really the time expectation is is really tough to just like taper and make sure that we're we're being clear on like how long it's going to take. Yeah, I think also uh, you you and I talked about this last time when we spoke offline. It was like. Elon often wants to set really, really ambitious goals so that internally the team is like yep. pushing, you know, mm -hmm. pushing to meet those goals that he stated. And even though he knows that it might not be achievable, like it'll be really, really difficult to achieve. So it's tough for him to also strike that balance. No, no, no in, indeed. Yeah, there's a, there's a, I mean, there's a rhetoric associated, uh, with uh, innovator, entrepreneur, they, they, they need to have a rhetoric to advance their, their knowledge and, and their efforts. It's, it's part of the job somehow. And especially now markets, if you are invest, you want to have some investor, you're, you're not going to depict your, your technology negatively, otherwise you're not going to attract any uh, um, uh, investor, but uh, in a free market, I mean. But, but yeah, again, but the risk is that by being always ambitious or the, 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 describing speculative and potentiality instead of reality, you might lure potential patient into that belief. And it's often difficult to make them, you know, to bring them back to reality. It's often called uh, the, the therapeutic misconception. You, you, you have patient enrolling in, in, in research trial, an experimental trial, and it, the language and the informed consent, it's clear. It's a research trial. It's an experimental trial. 
they don't mention any therapeutic outcome, but the patient is, is in the belief that they will receive a treatment. Mm. And as such, they have a misconception. And it's quite, it's quite difficult to um, make them change their opinion, actually. And um, there's a, a possibility. I'm, I'm sure things will, will, will go well for uh, Neuralink if they um, test the device in human. And again, I'm pretty sure that very soon you will see an effective outcome where potentially a paralyzed patient implanted with Neuralink will be able to uh, move a, a cursor on a screen or potentially use a prosthetic limb and um because now these technologies are pretty fast so i was thinking of uh, talking about the stentrone um last week i, I had a, a webinar uh, attended a webinar and they said that the first patient took something like 30 30 days to being able to move around the, the mouse and, and the screen and the patient took something like 24 hours and you could see a decrease wow fast it goes yet so you can think that if you get the implant in, in, in less than 24 hours you are always capable of moving around and, and even in the past it was I, I was i remember talking with some patient implanted with vci being paralyzed and took them months to masterize how to convert translate decrypt and now it's quite amazing so uh yes yeah, it's quite promising but uh but that here maybe i'm repeating myself but if you have an implant in your brain mm -hmm. Would you prefer having an implant in your brain to move something on the screen or just using a device in your hand, wearables? Like they, most people still have want something outside potentially, because we know that you need to change phone every two years because the technology advanced. It would be the same with an implant where you would need to be reoperated. That one, again, this is a, a negative description, not necessarily, but it's a possibility. But that being said, I don't have a mobile phone, so I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm one of the rare human beings. Oh, wow. Yeah, still capable of affording an existence without a mobile phone. It's more and more difficult to be a human without a mobile phone. Soon I will have my own YouTube channel about how to survive without a mobile phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To wow. the face of my student when I say that. They nobody really believe it's possible, but yes, it's possible. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that is rare, but that's that's pretty cool actually. Yeah. Okay. Uh well yeah, thank you for having this discussion and uh Hopefully we can, you know, reconnect again and, and do another similar conversation once there's more pro progress. Yeah, but also thanks to you because I think it's because of a YouTuber like you and a large audience uh, personality like you that actually we're capable of disseminating the idea that there are risks associated with these very spectacular technology and we need to talk about them. It's not because you, you're only being positive that the, the risk of will, will, will just go away, right? Sure. So, and if we want a very sustainable technology, we need to address these ethical questions very early. There's sure. plenty of example in technologies. Uh, I don't know, asbestos, for instance, was revolutionizing everything and then we discovered that was leading to cancer. It's, that's plenty of examples. Same with electrodes, brain computer interface. And again, thanks for taking the time to listen to people like me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Hopefully we can catch up soon, yes. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Dr. Gilbert. I appreciate it. Thanks, thank you. Okay, bye.